That's just tremendous uh, singing and a, and a wonderful, wonderful hymn. Um, indeed, all glory, all glory be to Christ our King. Um, we're so thankful to be here uh, this morning, thankful as uh, the friends and the family of Nicole and, and Juliana. And I know the reason that most of you have come here from your different churches to visit is um, if you have the gospel right, it's not because of a choice or a decision that, that they ultimately are making on their own. It's not because they have created a salvation or they have made a way for themselves. But what brings us here together as God's people is because we know as God's people that God has, has done a marvelous work. In fact, he has done a work that, as we're going to see today in Luke chapter 15, he has done a work that Jesus himself says that all of heaven rejoices. And so what brings us together here as God's people is ultimately that we are rejoicing in the saving work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our prayer is that you would leave here rejoicing over your own salvation, over their salvation, and ultimately over Christ our King, who to him belongs all of the glory. And so we're thankful that you're here with us, and, and at the end of the service we will hear these testimonies, but I do want to invite you to turn to Luke 15, uh, because as I said, this is the passage where Jesus actually tells us about God and all of the angels in heaven rejoicing that the lost are found. And so I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we will look at this chapter in, in a bit of, not too much, but a bit of detail. John, uh, Luke 15.1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property 
between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. That is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, your word and for its teaching. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have laid before us a tremendous word here in the form of parables, parables that remind us that your work of salvation is great, that it is a thing to behold, that it is marvelous, that it is worth rejoicing over, that it is good to rejoice over the salvation of the lost, because we know that ultimately one who was dead in their trespasses and sins has been raised from the dead, and that is the most remarkable and glorious news of all. And so we ask, O God, that you would help us to see these truths in your word as we go through it. Lift our hearts that we might rejoice in your salvation and rejoice and give you the praise that you so rightfully deserve and help us to magnify your name. We ask for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. So when I, I remember at 18, I went, to, um, I went to a church, and I was sitting in the church, and I was sort of reflecting on my sin. I had recently become a believer, 
And as I was sitting there and I heard the message and sermon, I must have had a look on my face that was sort of kind of downcast or guilty kind of look weighing on me. And you may notice that's kind of my face, my face naturally, so I have to focus on smiling. But anyway, so I'm, uh, I'm there and I'm hearing the sermon. I'm reflecting on God's love and his goodness, but you could tell that there was probably something weighty on me. And so an older gentleman who's since gone home to be with the Lord and, and helped to disciple me a little bit through that, he, he came up to me and, and he introduced himself. And I had never met him because this was like one of the first times I've ever gone to, this, to that particular church. And he said, why are you so, like, what's wrong? Why are you so downcast? And, and I explained to him, you know, my guilt of sin, and I explained to him that, you know, I am not deserving of God's grace and his kindness and his goodness, and I'm just so thankful. You know, I said I'm thankful that, uh, that he has done that, but I can't get past of how unworthy I am to receive this forgiveness. And, and he said, well, share your testimony with me. And so I told him my testimony, and I started off by telling him, you know what, this, it's not a, it's not a marvelous testimony. It's not like a train wreck kind of testimony that you sometimes hear where, or a Damascus Road kind of experience where uh, God knocks you off your horse like he did Paul and reveals himself to, to Paul. And, I, and so I proceeded to tell him my testimony, and, and he patiently listened to me, and he heard my testimony because I had kind of grown up in a church too, kind of like Juliana and Nicole. I grew up in a church hearing the gospel, and so it wasn't something brand new to me. But in any case, he listens, and then he, after I finished, I'll never forget what he said to me. He goes, you know what, Roman? And he said, every single conversion is remarkable. No matter what your testimony is, Damascus Road or not, every single conversion is absolutely remarkable. And he said, and you want to know why? He said, because someone who was dead is now alive. Someone who was dead is now breathing and alive in a way that they had never been before. And so when you, when you go to a funeral and a physical funeral and you look at it, you realize that that loved one is, is never coming back, and you know that intuitively. We don't necessarily see that spiritually all the time, right? We look at individuals, but the reality is that they've been given a new heart, you've been given a new heart, recreated, resurrected in Christ, and you are alive in a way that you have never been alive before, and that is the reason to rejoice. And what is so interesting here in Luke's gospel is that these Pharisees and these Sadducees, these righteous people who thought they didn't need a Savior, when Jesus was doing what he came to do, they were actually grumbling at the fact that he was receiving sinners and tax collectors and eating with them. They, they couldn't understand how Jesus who was holy and righteous, even before them as they looked at him, how he could take sinners and tax collectors and he could spend time with them. They, they saw him as a troublemaker already. He had healed people. He had done so on the Sabbath. He was doing all kinds of works before their eyes. And in fact, in chapter 14, you'll see that he was invited to a feast. 
he was invited to go to this uh, individual Pharisee's house, and he was invited on the Sabbath, and Jesus actually gives him a, a bit of admonishment in that chapter. He, he tells him in verse 13, he says, you know what, when you invite people to your house, he says to him, invite the poor, the crippled, and the lame and the blind. And then in verses 15 to 24 of chapter 14, he gives this parable about a banquet. And that parable in chapter 14, and you have to know this to understand what's going on in chapter 15 here, but in that parable, Jesus is basically picturing God's invitation to what you might say is the great banquet of Christianity. And he gives that offer, and one by one, people are rejecting his offer for various reasons. He's inviting people to the banquet of God, and, and they're rejecting it. Some have to be with their uh, loved one to bury it and so on, but they keep rejecting it. And the host of the dinner in the parable, in the parable, he says to his servant in verse 21, he says again, Go out into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And if there is still more room left, verse 23, then go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And so one of the points Jesus is making in chapter 14 is that this is what God does. God's heart is spread out toward the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And after he gives them this parable, he gives them the call to discipleship. He says, now, he who has an ear to hear, he says, at the end of 14, let him hear. Let him hear what all, not just that salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, you know, that's just proceeding. But the whole chapter... And the whole ministry of Jesus, when you look at Jesus, Jesus is saying, I'm inviting people into the banquet of God. He who has ears to hear, he says, let him hear. And so what is it that these Pharisees and these Sadducees should have been hearing? They should have been hearing that Jesus is that promised Messiah who was to come and to seek and save the lost. There is a prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34. You can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to read it. They should have been hearing that Jesus is the son of David and the shepherd of Israel who came to gather the lost sheep of Israel back into one shepherd. And here's the word of promise in Ezekiel 34, 11 to 12, and verses 15 to 16. Listen to this. Now, this is before... Jesus was born, but he had been promised. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. 
Now, if you look at chapter 15, verse 1, Luke tells us the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. It's happening. They're all coming near to him, but notice the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled saying, this man eats with sinners. This man receives sinners and eats with them. They're the fat and the strong of Ezekiel 34. And this was scandalous to them. And the reason it was scandalous to them is because when they thought about tax collectors, they thought of them as unpatriotic, dishonest, and greedy people. This is how they're viewing them. They were considered unclean before God and alienated from him. And they were despised, these tax collectors, by the self-righteous. And yet, they're the ones going to Jesus. And then there are these sinners This group that's coming near to Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes use the word sinners for a class of person who who was marked by manifestly immoral lives. They were common people. They didn't know the law of God. They didn't hear the words of God on a regular basis. They weren't the ones in the temple. They weren't the ones bringing the sacrifices. They weren't the ones who looked religious on the outside. And these were sinners. And they were coming to Jesus, these unclean people. And Jesus, he says, is receiving them. What does that that mean that Jesus receives them? What's going on here in Luke? Well, the word there for received, it's actually, it's used six times in Luke's writings. And every time he uses this Greek word, prosdekomai, it means eagerly waiting or expect and look for. So, for example, in 225, do you remember when they brought Jesus to the temple? And Simeon, it says, was eagerly waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was looking. He was anticipating it. And then it's used of Anna the prophetess, who spoke to those in the temple who were eagerly awaiting the redemption of Israel. And then in Luke 12, 36, Jesus says, Be like men who are eagerly waiting, awaiting the return of the Lord, the master from, for the feast, and so on. So in other words, what they saw Jesus doing when he's bringing in tax collectors and sinners, it's not that Jesus is passively waiting there for these sinners and tax collectors to find him. Jesus isn't passive in his salvation. In fact, Jesus is eagerly looking for a particular person or sheep, if you will, that belongs to him. He is going out and he's coming to the world and he came into the world to find his lost sheep. He came to find the one that belonged to him, the one who was predestined from before the foundations of the world, elect and chosen in God. He came to redeem that sheep, eagerly looking for them, seeking sinners and tax collectors because that's who his sheep are, to come to him. And so all of Luke 15, 
is Jesus' response to the grumbling accusations of the Pharisees and the scribes. And what he wants them to see, and this isn't the only point in the parable, but what he wants them to see is that this is a matter of joy in heaven, not grumbling. He wants them to rejoice that he, the Messiah, has come and is doing what the Father called him to do. And so you see that here in the three parables in 15. If you'll notice, you have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And all of them represent sinners. Being found represents faith and repentance. And the celebration is what God and all the angels of heaven are doing. And the conclusion in all three parables is the same. In verse 6, Jesus says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Verse 9, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Verse 24, This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And what did they start doing? They began to celebrate. A lost sheep, a found sheep, heaven rejoices. A lost, son, a lost coin, a found coin, heaven rejoices. A lost son, a found son, heaven rejoices. But do you notice in there that all of those things, the, the sheep, the coin, the son, they all belonged to God. Of all of them, he says, my coin was lost, my sheep was lost, my son was lost. And the one, those first two parables are really meant to highlight the third one. And that's the one we're going to kind of look at in a little bit of detail here. The parable of the prodigal son. And it really tells us why salvation is so amazing. And the first thing he, he points out, why we should rejoice, in this parable, Jesus tells us, you can, if you want to take notes, it says, because it magnifies God's grace. So in verses 11 to 28, 20a, we have the, parable, the, the prodigal son being described. And the prodigal son is a picture of a sinner who runs away from God. And when you run away from God, you might feel free at first. And you might feel like you are running away from God and there's nothing that can harm me and I'm living in a way that I can please myself and do my own thing. I am the master of my own domain and I do what I want and I'm free. But the reality is when you are living in sin apart from God, the end is actually utter misery. Either in this life, it may turn into utter misery, but certainly at the end of this life, it will result in utter misery. And so you look at this in verse 13. The father gives to the younger son his portion of the inheritance early. And then Jesus says, you know what? And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living, loose, wild abandonment of life. He felt free for a season, 
One person put it like this. If you go skydiving, I've never done it. I don't know if any of you are, but if you've ever skydived, apparently you jump out of the plane and you feel so free. And you feel like, wow, you're just going out, out of the plane in the middle of the air until you might realize that you forgot your parachute, right? And once you forget your parachute and you don't have a parachute, you realize you're not so free. You may feel like it, but you're not. And ultimately, the ground is going to tell you otherwise. <laughs> it's a bad picture. So this idea that people want to be free, you see it in our culture. People talking about, I got to be true to myself. You've heard that. I got to have my own identity. There are people that think they're so free that they, if they were born a man, that they can call themselves a girl, or if they were born a girl, they can just become a man. Uh, people that think that they're so free and so autonomous that if there's another human living with inside them as a, as a mother, that they have the right for their own freedom to kill that baby and so on. You see this in our culture, and you see this idea of people under the illusion that they are actually free from God when in reality they are anything but free and they are in bondage and enslaved to their appetites and to their sin. You can run from God, but you can't escape him forever. And so in verse 14 to 16, Jesus says, when this son had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. It's a desperate and it's a sad situation, and the only way that that son could be delivered out of that situation, there's only one way, if God shows him grace. Because if that man is left to himself, he is going to continue to feed in the pig trough, and he will feed until he dies. God had to lift that man out of his misery, and he had to bring that son back to life so that the son would see the nature of his condition before God. And this is what makes salvation and what Jesus does so remarkable. Jesus takes us out of our lost, sinful condition by his grace, and he makes us new. And so you'll see there in verse 17 that the man came to himself. So to come to yourself, it means this, that your eyes are opened to your condition. Your eyes are open to your need for a savior. Your eyes are open to your awaiting judgment before God. And so you have to come to yourself so that you can see who you are and what you need in order to be redeemed. And it reminds me always that that phrase come to himself of 
the story when Jesus goes across to the Gerasenes and there was a demon-possessed man there and he was cutting himself and he was hurting himself. Do you remember that? When Jesus goes and Jesus heals the man and, one, and he casts out the demons and the demons go into the pig and the, city, the pigs and the city gets really upset because this guy, they, he just destroyed all of this herd of pigs and cost them a lot of money. But when the city came, they knew that man, that he'd cut himself, he'd hurt himself, he was demon-possessed, he was locked away and chained into the cemetery. But when they came to him and they found him, it says they found him clothed and in his right mind. He was completely restored. That man went from demon-possessed to actually seeing, and that's what's happening here with the son. He's in the pig trough. He sees he needs to come out. He comes to himself, and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Why did he go to the father? He went to the father because he knew that his father is a father who shows grace. And so this parable, this is magnifying the Father's grace. And it's saying, you may be a sinner, but God's grace is greater than your sin. Don't we sing that hymn? God's grace is greater than your sin. And the other thing that it magnifies is it magnifies God's love. Because you'll see there in verse 20, you know, people think God is distant, he's an ogre, he's detached, or whatever people will say. But he's not indifferent, and he's not cold towards sinners. He actually cares and loves sinners. And in this parable, you'll see that when this man returns home to his father because he knows God is gracious, did you notice there as he returns and he gets up and he goes and he comes to his father that Jesus says, but while he was still a long way off, it says, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Isn't that a remarkable scene? Here is a man in this parable who's dignified, he's honorable, and he runs to receive his son who had squandered his wealth. And Jesus, I really think he wants you and I to see the emotion that he's conveying here. He wants you to understand and to feel this and to know this about God. This is the kind of father that he is. He is a father who loves his son and his daughter so much so that he will actually condescend to the point, the son of God, to go to the cross to die for them when he had committed no sin. And in this sense, the father runs to embrace his son. He loves his son. And that rem I thought about that because when I was a kid, nine years old, my mom and dad 
and my brother Richard, and he's in the back there, we went on a trip to Australia. And this always brings this to my mind. And as we're in Australia, we were visiting our family, and we were all together in a house, all the cousins and everyone, and we were getting ready to fly to California to go back home. So I was with my brother, and we were talking, and, and I told him, hey, I, I can't go outside right now where we were talking is not so important, but I said, you go and tell mom and dad that I'll be there in a minute. And so he leaves, and he's only seven at the time. He leaves, and I come out of the room that I was in. Okay, it was a bathroom, okay? So I come out of the, I come out of the bathroom, and I'm nine, and the house is pitch black. It's dark. There is nobody home. I'm in Australia, and I go and I open the front door, and there's no cars in the front door. Everyone had left. They, they, my parents actually left me behind in Australia and went to the airport, which was like an hour away, okay? So they left, and all of these, these, these things happened where I'm crying right away. I open the front door. I start bawling. I'm just, ah, I can't believe it. Like, where this neighbor hears me, she brings me in, she gives me a banana. I remember there's a banana. Should have been a mango or something, Australian. But she cares for me, and then, you know, some guy came. I didn't know who he was, but he, it turned out he was a family member. He picked me up. And he started taking me to the airport with a police escort. And so we're riding through all of these red lights. And we're going. And we must have got in the hour drive like 30 minutes or so. And the thing that I remember, among all those other things, but the thing that sticks to my mind is when I saw my parents. Because when I saw my parents, it didn't matter what I had done, why I was in the bathroom, why I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do, but they ran up to me and they hugged me and they kissed me and they said, we love you, and they were so happy to have me back. And that's how the father is. The father loves these sinners. And by the way, when I got on the plane, there was a standing ovation. They held back the plane for like an hour and for me. And so I got on there. I felt like the president, you know, was cheering me on. But that's how God loves us. That's how he loves sinners. And so this parable highlights that. And again, this isn't all the point of the parable. These are just things I'm drawing out of it for us this morning. But the final thing that it does is you'll notice how it also magnifies the joy of God's family. It magnifies his grace and his love, but look how it magnifies really the joy of being in God's family, verses 21 to 24. Because salvation means that God brings you into his home with open arms, and he receives you as the son or daughter that you are. He restores you to the place you were intended to have in his home, even though you've sinned against him and you are not worthy of it. 
He overcomes the lost estate, and he actually brings you back fully into his presence. So the son makes his confession. The father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And so he lavishly brings in the son. He welcomes him back into the home. He gives him the best robe, the robe of sonship, not of slavery. He puts a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And he restores him to his family. Bring the fattened calf, he says, and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He is lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It is a glorious, glorious truth. And I can tell you from experience that and Nicole may not like that I say this, and I know Cole and Tanya will say the same, that uh, these girls were not perfect, and they're going to they're gonna tell us about that. They're going to tell us their testimony. They're going to tell us how they understood themselves to be. But they're not perfect, and you're not perfect, and I'm not perfect. I don't think there's anyone in here that can raise their hand and say that I deserve to be in the presence of God. Is there anyone here that thinks, don't answer this question, but <laughs> that actually thinks that they have a right to be brought into God's kingdom? And that when you die and you come before God Almighty, that you're going to come and God's going to look at you and your work and say, you know what? This one is good enough. It's not going to happen because you and I know that we are lost. And you and I know that we need God's grace and we need to be loved by God and we need to be adopted by God into his family. And there's only one way that that can happen. And the only way that that can happen is if you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has fulfilled and gives all the blessings of the new covenant in his blood. And he accomplished it all on the cross, and it is ours by faith in him. He is risen again. We, in him we are regenerated, made new, born again. We are forgiven. We are sanctified. We are adopted. We are glorified. And we are united with Christ, and we are brought into his family. Only by faith in Christ. Now, that leads us to baptism. What is it then that God gives to us to picture what God has done? This is the point. What did God institute so that we as people of God might remember and see what God has done? And what he gives to us at the church, besides the Lord's table, he gives to us and institutes this ordinance of baptism. Do you remember after Jesus dies, he's crucified, he dies, he's buried, he's risen again? Jesus says this, all authority, this is after he's risen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The reason that Jesus institutes baptism is not to give us a test to pass in order to make sure that we're saved. Do you understand? It's not a test that's given that says, you know what, if you really, really, really want to prove to be my disciple, then you got to pass this test. you got to be baptized. That's not what the baptism is. The baptism, as we practice it here, is, is an ordinance that God gives us that is a sign of washing. Uh, it's a symbol, yes, of burial given to us by our Lord, but it's an outward sign of washing, and it points to all that Jesus has accomplished. So when these girls are baptized, or when you were baptized, you were baptized because God made a promise through Jesus. And his promise was, as we've already said, that he will redeem his own. That means he will give them faith. He will cause them to be born again. He will cause them to be sanctified. It says that he will adopt them into his family. He will unite them. All of these promises that God gave. And the baptism says, my faith, those promises, everything that God has promised is true. That's the primary meaning of baptism. Those things are true, and baptism is a, is a sign that we as God's people remember that God did that. God did that for them, and God did that for me, and God did that for all those who believe in him. That's what we are celebrating and we're looking at when we look at baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't make those truths a reality. It signifies this. I'll say it one more time. It signifies this. Everything Jesus accomplished on the cross is ours by what? Faith in him. This is what it pictures. And, and so this is what we need to understand as the true meaning of what baptism is. And this is why it's all God's work. This is why Jesus says that when you baptize, you are to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because it's God's triune work, right? Now, we'll get there. At this church... We practice it by immersion. So what we, it, that's not the way you have to do it, but we do it by immersion. That means that the, the girls will go fully under the water. We just think that's a great way to picture God's work. You can do it by sprinkling or pouring over, but we, as Baptists Church, we, we practice by full immersion, picturing, yes, buried in a grave, if you will, and rising again. Now, that's not to say that the act of being baptized, though, is irrelevant on your part. The reason that you are being baptized is because 
you have placed your faith in Christ, and you are, you are saying that these covenant promises belong to me by faith. And whether or not you, you um, always feel that, it's true. And what you can do in your life is you look back to the fact that, you know what? I look back to the baptism, and you can remember those promises of God. And you can remember that they're yours by faith in him. And the same is true for each of you here. If, if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to say this, whether as an infant or as an adult, if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it is good for you at this time to look back to that baptism. Don't look back to it as something you've done don't look back to it to say, you know what, this is something I did for God, and therefore I know I truly belong to God. That's not what the purpose is, because if you do that, you're sure to think when things don't go well that you should be baptized what? Again, and again, and again, and again. But there is no need. There's one baptism, one time you're baptized, and that baptism points to God's work. Your testimony is an appeal to God and his promises. So if you haven't come to Christ, turn to him, trust him as Lord and Savior, because he's offering himself to you this morning. So now, Nicole and Juliana, what we would like to hear from you is what God has done for you in Christ. And so you're going to come and give us your testimonies, and then we will go to the back and be baptized. But join with me in a word of prayer, and then we'll have them come up. Lord, we thank you for your word, and Lord Jesus, we thank you for this parable and for what it pictures, how it magnifies your grace and your love, how it magnifies the joy that is within your family. And we ask, O oh God, that you would... Um, just bless us in a tremendous way as we hear of the work that you have done in Juliana and Nicole's life, how you have transformed them and brought them to know you as Lord and Savior, how you've granted them faith and forgiveness and adoption and all of the promises that are in Christ. And we give you the glory for that, and we pray that you would be honored in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. All right, Juliana.